Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we give an update on the $100 million deli, talk about student loan forgiveness, and more. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I'm Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, good to see you. Good to see you too. We're actually recording two episodes this week. We are ahead, which is not normally our MO. We've got a great interview that we're going to air next week. But there were a bunch of things that have come up in kind of our news feed and conversations recently that I thought it was worth jumping into because I think some of them are a little bit more topical and hopefully just a fun episode of of some things that we can chop up together. Speaking of fun, one thing that I thought would be fun if you've been a listener for a while is to make a drive up to New Jersey to get a sandwich from a deli together. That was the was it the $100 million deli. Yeah, the $100 million deli. That's that's an old episode, but it's worth going back to listen to if you haven't heard it, because I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I thought it would be fun to eat the sandwich. That cannot happen anymore, Ross, because that deli is closed. I know. I like. Now, admittedly, it's been over a year since we aired that episode. So if we were really excited about like a sandwich from that deli, we needed to to get much more active and go do that. But the opportunity has now been lost. The deli is closed. Yeah, the prospect of dealing with traffic was less exciting than having a, a pleasant lunch together. Uh, you did send me over the article kind of outlining the closing of the deli. I read the headline and felt sad for the deli and also interested because of the story. I actually read the article today and it gets much more interesting than simply this deli that doesn't make money closing, which would make sense. But Apparently, the deli's ownership actually merged with a company called Macamer Holdings, which is outrageous that this deli business merged with Macamer, which is a plastics company. And then they explained the closing of the deli. It says, Macamer Holdings said is now focused on making biodegradable resins to replace existing petroleum-based plastics, which apparently is taking too much of their time as opposed to to making sandwiches at at a local deli. Everything about this story is just weirder and weirder. It was weird that a public company owned this one single deli. It was weird how little money the deli was making. Like even as a deli, you got to assume that there's some money in sandwiches. There's sandwich shops everywhere. There's it's it, there's no way that all of these sandwich shops are making what was their sales? It was something like 30 grand over the course of the year or something like that. Yeah, it, it gets better. So so at the very end of the article, it says, for the three months ended June 30th, the company reported a net loss of $9 million, which it attributed to the closing of the deli and the transition to bioplastics, a sentence I thought I would never read in my life. Yeah, it, it's it's just the weirdness of financial markets and the fact that it's a public company and that they have to do that with all this public reporting is is just wild to me. And I still don't know what's going on. I don't know what the scheme is or the game plan is. Maybe this is a completely legitimate plastics manufacturer and that they're going to do wonderful things. And and uh, that just doesn't seem like what's likely going on. They have a wonderful mission for whatever it's worth. So to, to whatever extent they're legitimate and doing 
business, then that's great. Um, but I guess we'll have to see why they got engaged in such a strange um, story. So the thing that I thought was a little bit more topical that we should get into is the student loan forgiveness situation. As many folks know, there was a bill signed into law that is going to forgive up to $10,000 of debt on student loans for borrowers making less than $125,000 if you're single or two fifty dollars as a household if you're married. And that is also an additional $10,000, so $20,000 of forgiveness for those that received Pell Grants. And we talked pretty recently on the show when we had uh, Anna Helhoski on to talk about student loans and how big of an issue it is. And I, I kind of look at this through a few different lenses. In one way, you kind of go, all right, was this the best way to solve the problem? Uh, maybe, maybe not. There, there's a bunch of other things as part of the bill. So the headline thing has been this debt relief. The other things that they are doing, they have introduced a new income-based repayment program that allows you to do just 5% of your income. They have added to the Pell Grant program. So they're going to be giving out more in terms of Pell Grants. So there's like a bunch of things here, Dan. But what was your immediate read when this became law? I had so many thoughts when I think it was an executive order that was signed. So I'm not sure this was like fought through in in Congress or anything. I think President Biden just signed an executive order to make this what was going to happen, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the, you, you, may, you may be right there. I thought, I thought it was a, a law, but you're right. It, it's probably just uh, an executive order of some sort. Yeah, I, I think I was a little bit underwhelmed. And I could take that in either direction, right? So if you were trying to deal with the student loan crisis, I'm going to call it a crisis because it's it's insane out there for, for student loan borrowers. There are clearly people who are going to benefit from this in a big way. Uh, but I'm not sure, like you said, it addresses the underlying factors that led to where we are today. Uh, I think for a lot of people, like, you know, 10,000 is nice, but people are buried in six-figure student loan debt at the same time. Uh, on the other side, you know, it's for for many people, like, is this the best way to use funds to to put the country in a better place? I don't know. And then, you know, we've had many years, a couple years of no student loan payments for people. And, and some folks have been trying to get ahead on paying, paying them back while they had the luxury of not being required to pay a certain amount. And it kind of punishes people who were proactive about that. Now, I'm all over the place with my thoughts on this on this order. I think at the the bottom line is it's certainly nice that some people will be able to benefit from it. You know, I'm not sure there are honestly many planning opportunities that arise from it because it is addressing a very short window of time on returns that have already likely been filed for 2020 and 2021. So I had a friend that posted this, and they were explaining to somebody that is not a U.S. citizen, somebody that was a, an international friend, about kind of what their loan situation was. And so they went back and looked at their original loan. And they had forgotten, apparently, how much they had taken out because they were kind of basing it on the current balance, and, and it had sort of obscured it for them. They took out, for their education, I believe this person has a master's, but $61,500 is what they had taken out in terms of the total loan. They had currently made payments of $48,000, and the current balance today, 60547 
47 bucks more than the original loans have been taken out after making almost 50 grand of payments. That's an upsetting thing, right? If you've been in that situation where you've taken out those types of loans, on one hand, you could look at 10 grand and go like, okay, whatever. In my mind, the relief should come from not having so much interest baked into these loans, especially that they are federally backed. That's the part that's always boggled my mind, right? The only way to basically get out of paying them is to die. Right. That's that's an option, not a good one. Right. So so like unlike a mortgage where you've got collateral, they're they're gonna come take your home on a mortgage. But I still don't understand why we're paying higher rates on a federal student loan than you would on a mortgage for a home. That's crazy to me in terms of how secure the debt is. Like that's what I would attack first if I were trying to make this more affordable. Because you've got this situation where people that have paid their loans are like, well, why didn't I get a handout? And then you've got this situation where people that have like are still struggling with this. I don't know that it does enough for them. Like it, it's it's really a, a an odd solution to me. Right. So if you're on an income based repayment plan where you're paying a percentage of your income, which it sounds like now might be a lower percentage than it was before, that ten thousand dollars may never help you because you might be paying that percentage of your income for twenty or twenty five years and not even make a dent in your loan balance. And that ten thousand dollars is just like gone for no for no reason because it was never going to be paid off to begin with. So it is an odd scenario. You know, I think the people probably this helps the most are the folks who didn't even finish their degree. You know, a lot of people start school and then due to circumstance or where whatever it may be, leave and are kind of saddled with a student loan debt balance uh, for you know that ended up being for nothing. On the income based repayment programs. To go to ten percent, or to go from ten percent, excuse me, to five percent of your income—that's meaningful. You know, that definitely means that you've got more cash flow in your pocket. So, for somebody that's on an income-based repayment plan, I think that's maybe the more meaningful part of the change here. Is that's what you're actually going to feel—is the cash flow difference when you're looking at a balance on a student loan. I mean, similar to the way that you feel about your mortgage balance. Like, if if I reduced your mortgage by ten grand tomorrow, Dan, would you feel any different? No, I probably wouldn't feel anything for twenty nine and a half years. Yeah, because you're going to make the same payment, right? right? That's where you're going to actually feel it is in your cash flow. You know, stuff that moves around on your balance sheet. I mean, honestly, similar to a stock portfolio, right? So if you're going through a market downturn, and you go, okay, well, how has your life changed? Unless you're actually taking withdrawals or you're living on dividend income or something like that, the stock market going up and down shouldn't be changing your cash flow. And that's kind of how I view this. You know, Changing the balance on something that isn't going to meaningfully change your cash flow, I just don't think is the bigger impact piece. I, I think the payment piece is a much bigger issue for people because that's actually going to affect their day-to-day cash flow, how they can spend money and create a little bit more relief there. But I think that that's going to it's going to help a smaller subset of, of the population, right? I think the number of people that are really impacted by that is, is a pretty low number. Yeah, I agree. And I think the details of the income, the new income-based repayment plan they're adding have yet to be released or fully fleshed out. Uh, I don't love that there are now going to be five or six income-based repayment options. That is unnecessarily complicated, uh, but good on them for for trying to do something, I guess. Well, yeah, and and you just went through this in depth for a client. I know that. I mean, you spent more time working through these repayment 
programs than uh, than I think either of us had in a, in a very long time. So I, I think at this point, you're the one with the the sharpest saw on that. Yeah, I wish I didn't. It is it is complicated, and there's a lot of nuance to each of them. Uh, it's worth working with someone who knows what they're talking about when it comes to student loans. All right, so let's go to the opposite side of the spectrum because I saw a bunch of outrage on this online, and I thought that it was a funny story. Not because I find it ridiculous. I think it's interesting how people frame a story like this. So Bon Appetit put out a story that does not have an author on it. It just says by Bon Appetit contributor. I think that's a little bit interesting. But this is written on how a 27-year-old consultant eats on 225000 a year in Washington, D.C. So that caught my eye for several reasons. One, it's good income. Two, it's a fairly young person. It's in D.C. It's here kind of in my backyard as a, as a Virginian. I won't claim that I'm a, a Washingtonian, but certainly in D.C. metro. And there was a lot of outrage. And the reason there was outrage was that this person has a diary in this article of kind of what they ate uh, or what she ate over the course of a week. There were several restaurant meals included in that. And her weekly spend was about a thousand bucks on food. I've been told by many people that I should keep a diary of what I eat in a week, but for very different reasons. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want anybody to read the diary of what I eat in a week. But so, so just participating in this, th- this would scare me. But the shock and outrage of people going, she's spending a thousand bucks in a week on food, which that's about 4,000 a month. That is a, a meaningful food budget, especially for a um, a single person or a single household even. Dan, did you have a reaction to this? A little bit. First, I I guess this is a series that they do. I don't really understand what the article is getting at, but I guess it's kind of voyeuristic and people like having the glimpse into other folks' lives. My initial impression first is this is someone who has saved. They're 27 years old and have $400,000 in savings across home equity, which may, maybe that's the bulk of it. And maybe she got help with you know the purchase of a home. Uh, but they have a 401k, they have a Roth IRA, they have brokerage accounts. So this seems like someone who, by all accounts, is being at least somewhat responsible and allocating some of her, her income to savings. So that was my first reaction. She kind of outlined some of her fixed expenses beyond food. They seem fairly moderate. And then as I was looking through the breakdown of the week, most of that is really in one large meal, right? She She spent 400 and something bucks on a date with her boyfriend at this Japanese place, which sounded amazing. So I don't know if this is a typical week or not, but you know, my thought is maybe this is an outlier. The other days seem more normal. The reaction I had in my head, and and I think that this is a funny thing because I, I get questions from clients a lot that are like, well, how are we doing relative to other people? Right? I think there's just this natural instinct to want to compare yourself. And you know, am I doing well for my age? Am I doing poorly? Am I behind? So I definitely get that sense from people that they want to know how they stack up against their peer group. Fidelity does these studies all the time. Well, this is how much you know you should have saved by this age and whatever multiple of your income and all this stuff, right? Like I, I think these are popular articles. People wouldn't keep writing them if they weren't getting eyeballs and getting clicks. And I definitely get that sense when I talk to people. That being said, I think that this is a lot like your driving speed, right? When you're out on the highway and you're, you've chosen whatever speed you think is comfortable, 
whether that's at or above the speed limit is up to you, but you're going to make that choice. And then once you've picked that speed, everybody going slower than you, you're like, look at this idiot. Get out of my way. My goodness. Like, what are you doing? And then everybody going faster than you, you're like, look at this maniac. What a crazy person. I have chosen the correct speed. Everybody else is a dummy. That's how I think people think about their food budget, right? Like if you're somebody that is spending a thousand bucks a month to feed a family of four, to look at somebody spending a thousand bucks a week is like absurd, right? Like it just feels so wasteful and and so ridiculous. On the other hand, if somebody's spending 10 grand a month on food for whatever reason, because they're eating exclusively at high-end restaurants, and they look at this and they somehow feel better about themselves. They're like, "Woo, I was uh, I was really burning through some cash. This makes me feel pretty good." Now, I think that that's going to be the lower percentage of folks. DC is an expensive city, particularly for restaurants. I like it. It's become a pretty good food city, but the good food in DC is very expensive. So, you know, I wouldn't eat like this two, three, four nights a week, but uh, more as a special occasion thing. But the the prices she was paying didn't stick or shock me as a resident here. And I just found it kind of funny watching the outrage because I think people were obviously comparing it to their own situation. And people have very different situations. It doesn't mean that she's better off or not. It just means she's spending and choosing to spend a lot of money in this particular category. Here's a question. When we do financial planning, we often talk about different stages of life. And single in the city, I feel like is an expensive stage of life or, you know, single and unmarried in the city because you're on one income. There's a lot of pressure to go out and the cost of living is so high. That's got to be a tough thing to navigate to feel like you're still being social and out there while managing your budget effectively. I mean, yeah, there's... There's a lot of middle ground though, right? To to go out and have a dinner for two and spend four hundred bucks. Right. That that's an expensive meal. Like you can eat really well on half that in DC. Right. And and again, I'm I'm not judging that choice because I think it's her choice to make. She she's got the cash flow. It outlines that she's basically got ten thousand dollars a month of after tax cash flow. So I mean, if you're gonna pay your your bills and your mortgage and all this stuff with like the first four grand and spend another five or six on food after you've done some savings? Like, uh, I don't know. What I do find interesting is that that would be a really easy place to flex and tighten up if you had to, right? So if you're if you're thinking about like a cash reserve for somebody like that, or you're building a plan for somebody like that, that's clearly not what they have to spend. That's what they're choosing to spend. Uh, and so I think from a from a planning perspective... If you're going to continue to eat like that, that's fine and and you can plan for it. But I don't think that it's necessary. And so for me, I would break that down into, okay, what's a tight month look like? What does a, a luxury month look like? And maybe do the plan kind of somewhere in the middle uh, to understand what would be possible and then stress test to those other scenarios to say, okay, if you were going to be very frugal in terms of your budget on food, this is very possible Versus if we want to continue to kind of ball out a little bit and and eat in that same way. Yeah. And, and those things are tough to budget week by week. Most people are going to go up and down depending on the, you know, what that time of year brings. So tracking against a moving couple month average is really the best way to understand what you're doing. 
No question. Yeah, I mean, you you don't want to take that week, and maybe that is a typical week for her, but you don't want to take that week and extrapolate it out 52 times. You want to look at what have you done over the past three months, six months, or I, I tend to go year, right? I kind of do that chip away at your budget. What did you make last year? What did you save? What did you pay in taxes? That's how I do budgeting is I literally break a year down by that method and try to understand it so that we've got a much more smoothed out thing where you're not trying to guess at what you spend on food. Let's just figure it out because I think we can back into that number pretty easily for most people. Right. You're like a diagnostic budgeter as opposed to a forward looking like box you're spending budgeter. It's like, what did we do? If Where can I make changes if I need to? A hundred percent. Because I, I think that that is, it doesn't mean that that's what you're going to do, but I do think it means that's what you've been doing, right? If we look at what you did in the last year and you said, okay, I was comfortable, we can easily use that as a starting spot, right? And then you can make a choice of if you needed to tighten your belt, how would you do it? Where would you do it? What would you reduce? But that is, that's a great starting spot versus I don't know what I spend and I'm just going to take a weird guess at it. Yep. Fully agree. We should do a uh, dining in the city uh, edition of Check Your Balances. I feel like there's so many restaurants that have opened up, and I don't even know where people are going these days. Yeah, Dan, you you don't get down quite as often as I do. I think I spend a little bit more time in D.C. than you do, but that is for, for both social reasons, and then also I'm a little bit closer to it than you are. But uh, that would be a fun uh, fun way to do the show. Or you and I can just go eat somewhere and uh, tell people about it later. Yep, I think that that's in the cards. We can bring Matt, who's our resident DC, uh, well, our resident DC resident. I guess is what I was trying to say. <laughs> awesome. Well, I know this is a little bit of a hodgepodge episode. We kind of had a few things that we wanted to hop through without any of them really being worthy of a full episode. But uh, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love your feedback. Check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for us. Feel free to send us your comments, questions, things that you want to hear us talk about. We have a fantastic interview coming up for you next week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. (laughs) 